0: My name is Danielle, and this is the Maxim Institute podcast. In May last year, I came across a book called With the End in Mind Dying, Death, and Wisdom in an Age of Denial by Dr. Catherine Mannix. Catherine is a pioneer of palliative care in the UK and has over 30 years' experience caring for people at the end of their life. Through her work, she realised that society had become too removed from the process of dying. Most of us have no idea what normal dying looks like, only getting glimpses from dramatic portrayals in film, books and TV. Catherine's book attempts to reorient our expectations of dying away from fear and back to reality. In this beautiful and challenging collection of stories, we hear about real people and the process of their deaths. We were captivated by Catherine's perspective and invited her to New Zealand to share her experience and expertise on what the end-of-life looks like. This podcast is a recording of Catherine's public talk, where she spoke alongside New Zealand experts at AUT University.
1: I want to talk to you about dying. I want to talk to you about the fact that we don't like to talk about dying. This photograph is of a tree that is reputed to be 2,000 years old. It's called the Angel Oak. It's in Charleston in South Carolina. And when I was there, it was having spring. It was growing new leaves. It was growing tiny little flowers. You don't think about oak trees having flowers, do you? But there wouldn't be acorns if they didn't. Um, And it looks as though it's immortal. But in fact, it's going to die one day. And I'm going to die. And you're going to die. And everybody that you love is going to die. And the people you don't like so much are going to die as well, if that's any consolation. (laughs) Um, But it's a thing that generally we try very hard not to talk about. So when you think about how we survive as, as animals, we've got all these reflexes so that if we, you know, swallow something down the wrong way we cough or if we find that we're crossing the road in front of a bus that's careering towards us we have a big adrenaline rush and it gives us the energy to get out of the way so we've got all of these physical reflexes to keep us alive and comfortable and well but we've got mental reflexes as well we've got reflexes that help us to not think about things we don't like Now, I'm not going to ask anybody to do anything they don't want to do this evening, but I would really like to know who the people are in this room who don't like spiders. Can you stick your hands up and everybody else can have a look? There are actually a disproportionate number of spider dislikers in this room. Thank you very much for telling us that. There are no pictures of spiders coming up, just so you know. (laughs) The thing about having a friend who doesn't like spiders is that I know that these are people who really, really, really don't like spiders, yeah? These are the people who won't go camping with you because they've seen the toilet blocks and things might lurk in the corners. These are the people who don't really like barbecues. Who, who doesn't like a barbecue? And what they're doing is they're avoiding the possibility that they will have to even think about thinking about thinking about a spider. Okay, it's a psychological swerve that preserves their peace of mind. They're laughing now. I should have brought the spider picture, shouldn't I? But we do the same thing about mortality and dying and death. We do the psychological swerve that enables us not to have to think about it. And one of the things is that we don't say the words. So have you noticed how even on Radio New Zealand we've had a lot of passing and passing away on the news over the last week or so? Yes, it's happening in the BBC as well. We've had a lot of trouble with people policing each other's words. So I said to a lady that I knew that I was very sorry to hear that her husband had died. She and I had a perfectly peaceful conversation And then a mutual friend came up to me and said, I can't believe you said the word died to Madeline about her husband. So there's a thought police thing going on as well. So in that transaction between me and my friend, the word died was entirely appropriate because I said it with sensitivity. If she wanted to say passed away or passed, she's the bereaved person. She gets to choose her language. We don't police what people need to say to get through. But when we're talking in normal life, and certainly when we're talking in healthcare, we have to use the D-words. We have to name them instead of using these euphemisms. Or we have um, symbols like butterflies and sunsets, because somehow that protects us from the emotional distress. My book has been translated into quite a lot of languages. Almost every book cover has turning leaves on it. (laughs) In Italy, they're dead leaves. (laughs) So we don't talk about dying, we don't know about dying, and then we get sick, or somebody that we know gets sick, and then we're in really big trouble because we don't know what we don't know, because we've been so busy not talking about it for so long. So then what happens is we fill the gaps in what we don't know by what information is available to us. So, this is an English soap opera, and it's showing the perfectly average situation at death of a young woman who was pregnant when she had a big brain bleed and her baby was delivered by caesarean section. Happens at least ten times a week, obviously. (laughs) Because normal dying isn't shown on entertainment, because it's so gentle that actually it's not very good drama. The key is in the word drama. So uh, here's another British soap opera, which is called EastEnders, you may be familiar with it. This, uh, the elderly lady has been able to blow her candles out, she's been terminally ill for a while. Great storyline, though. We're getting advice from a, a, a very um, famous British palliative physician. And then in the very last episode of this storyline, her friend Dot slipped her an overdose of her morphine, because people were getting up during EastEnders and putting their kettles on, that's how the government know whether we're watching the telly or not by the electricity surges when we put our kettles on. okay. and I'm realising that New Zealanders drink nearly as much tea and coffee as we do in Britain, so it's the the same thing pertains. And and it's not just Britain, just so you know, I'm not being picky. Um, But when the Sarah Potts character died, the um, TV company was inundated with requests for them to write some kind of plot twist so that they could reintroduce her to the soap. Or, if you live in South Island, of course, there's always the danger of being shot by orcs on your way to the supermarket. (laughs) So it's very difficult to find good images of dying to fill the gap where people don't know what they don't know. This is Philadelphia. This is the Tom Hanks character, Andy. And it's a fantastic terminal illness story, and the makeup is superb, and his gradual loss of energy and needing to sleep more is absolutely right. That is what happens, whatever it is that we're dying of. But we don't see him die. We see that manly reconciliation between him and Denzel Washington, and then we flash to a graveyard, and you will notice from now on that that is how we do dying on the telly. So we've got this interesting dilemma of not knowing, not knowing that we don't know, and thinking that we do know because we filled the gaps with stuff that we've got from newspapers, which report the salacious, they report the unusual, they report the tragic. So I've been on seven planes in the last 10 days. And none of them fell out of the sky, not a one. But if I only knew about planes from reading newspapers or watching the news, I would think the risk of falling out of the sky was actually very, very big, whereas in fact, Most planes do not fall out of the sky, and it doesn't make the news. And difficult dying is a little bit like that. There are places, though, where it isn't like that. So this is a funeral shop in the Andes in northern Ecuador. This is is a market town in Ecuador. It's not not a touristy place. And it's one of three funeral shops in the street and as you can see you can have a big fancy coffin or you can have a much plainer coffin Um, you can have a large cross or a small cross no cross not an option in ecuador just so you know Um, the tiny little box at the top i thought might be for ashes but actually it's for um, unborn babies babies who die in utero And you can't be buried in Ecuador because it's all volcanic, so all of the graves are above ground. And they're carefully tended, whitewashed several times a year. Families have picnics with their dead relatives out there. They know how to celebrate a life that was well lived. And they don't need to wonder what dying is like, because actually dying happens at home. Dying happens surrounded by the family, and people recognise the sequence of the deathbed. Now then, can you imagine seeing this on a high street in Auckland? Can you see what the shop is next door? It's a cafe and it was doing a booming trade and there was a greengrocers next door. And in fact, I think the greengrocers and the uh, funeral shop might have swapped premises because there's an awful lot of vegetables around this, this funeral shop, aren't there? So, I don't know, one of them was doing better trade than the others, we'll, we'll just have to work out which way that was going, won't we? So here we are in this situation where people continue to die at an approximate rate in New Zealand of 100%. (laughs) (laughs) But we've forgotten what it's like. And I was moved eventually to think we can't carry on trying to solve this one individual dying person at a time, one family at a time. We actually need everybody to know what normal dying is like, so people are far less afraid of a process that is not terrifying, not painful, doesn't cause any symptoms. If we're dying of something, then the disease that we're dying of may cause symptoms, which is why it's important that those symptoms are addressed and palliated as early as possible. But the process of dying itself is simply about becoming more tired, Lapsing into unconsciousness, having a period of breathing that is only driven by our brainstem in unconsciousness. So deep breaths, shallow breaths, noisy breaths, panty breaths, all of that breathing misinterpreted by families as groaning and breathlessness when actually it's a sign that people are very deeply unconscious before there's a final out-breath that just isn't followed by another in-breath. I've walked into rooms where that's happened sometime in the last five minutes, and the family around the bed has not noticed that it's happened. It's been so gentle. But that doesn't happen on soap operas, that doesn't happen in cinema, that doesn't get reported in newspapers. And yet there are people in this room who are nodding at me, and I meet people who say, you know, when my mum died, it was so gentle, and we were all around her, and it was really peaceful. I'm so glad that she had such an unusual death, and I don't tell anybody else, because I know most people see terrible things. And I could weep, because actually what I want you to do is go and tell people how your mum died, because what you saw was normal dying. And because we don't discuss it, nobody understands. Nobody knows. So my attempt to give us back an understanding of normal dying is to tell the stories of the people that I've looked after. So that's what the book is. There are no technical words in the whole book. There are about 30 people's stories. They've all been anonymized, apart from about half a dozen of them where I couldn't change enough details to make the story still make sense, so I have to go and find those families. It means that there's a fantastic story that's still in my computer that I can't publish because I can't find the patient's family but all of the others where they're recognisable. um, The patients' families were absolutely delighted and had wished that there might have been a book like this when they'd been in need of it. So they're all just normal dying stories. With the proviso that, apart from the first few years when I was a medical student and a very junior doctor, they're all people who are dying with the benefit of the attention of a palliative care team because that's how I got to know them. And the way palliative care teams work is that you have a doctor or a bit of a doctor. So for me, it was half of a doctor because I was a mum the other half of the week. And a big team of nurses, some physiotherapists, occupational therapists, social workers, all carrying big caseloads. Or I was working in a hospice for a period of time, working in a community palliative care team, working in a big hospital. And I would be the go-to doctor if there was a problem with the patient known to that big team. So I did the maths, and it turns out that I've looked after somewhere between ten and 15,000 people as they've been dying. Now, I'm not telling you that to show off or so that you'll call the police, which is a possibility. I'm telling you that so that you know that even though I've sat beside people that I love as they have been dying, I am not talking to you out of my bereavement. I'm not talking to you about my relative or my friend. I'm talking to you about normal human dying as I have seen it thousands and thousands of times. And I think that we should be consoling each other with this truth that this is a normal process, just the same way that Pregnancy and birth are processes that we can recognise the stages. So every single person who's given birth to a baby or babies knows that she had a completely individual experience that was different from every other birth. Yes? And yet your midwife will have seen the same process that she sees every single time, which is how she knows whether you can go away for a cup of coffee, whether you can get into the birthing pool, whether it's time to get on that bed yet, whether it's time to push, because she knows the process, whereas we are experiencing being in labor. Does does that make sense? So the biological process of dying has a clear sequence of being more tired, needing more sleep to try and recharge our energy, eventually not really recharging it very much, sleeping more, being awake less. Eventually coming in and out of unconsciousness when we're asleep. Can't reliably take our medicines then, so if we need medicines to keep symptoms at bay, we very often will swap at that point to giving injections or put them in a little syringe pump so the right amount of drug each hour keeps coming into our system. And at the very end of life, There is this change in breathing that's cyclical. That We have to tell families what's going on so that they don't mistake it for distress. We also have to tell families that sometimes, despite being attended constantly by people who love them very much, people manage to find the only 30 seconds, when there's nobody in the room, to take that last breath out that isn't followed by an in-breath. We don't understand what that's about because equally people who should have been dead days or even weeks ago are maintaining their unconscious presence with us until the phone call comes that says that the baby in Dunedin has been born or the voice of the nephew from Canada arrives in the room it is astonishing and extraordinary and we don't really fully understand it all so I'd like to suggest to you that just like good antenatal care lines us up for a safe labor Good identification of symptoms early on in the phase that's the last part of life will line us up for better dying. And therefore, palliative care being offered by general practitioners or cardiologists or oncologists is something to be welcomed. That specialists in palliative care are available to those doctors and nurses if they want some extra help and support. And for people whose problems are more difficult than that team can support, then you know we love to meet you. We love to see patients. We might see you once, tweak your medicines, never see you again. We might see you for a few weeks to get things on an even keel and then let you go back to your usual treatment and care. Or we might walk alongside you for the rest of your life, working in partnership with the teams who look after you. We will not take over because our role is to accompany. So I'm going to tell you a story because that's what I do these days. Um, When I first went to work in hospice, I'd been qualified for five years. I'd worked in wards where very sick people very frequently died. Um, I'd worked in the regional cancer center. I'd worked on a leukemia ward. So I'd seen a lot of dying, but generally, my job was to be the girl who stopped the person dying, because that's what junior doctors are about. so when I first heard somebody who was a consultant in palliative medicine describing to a patient what dying was like, I was appalled that he was going to describe the process of dying to this lady. I was sitting on a footstool beside the bed as he was talking to her, and I kept thinking, this cannot be happening. This, the, you, you can't possibly tell somebody this. And what he described to her he described because she was so afraid that she would die in agony, and if she died in agony, she would be separated forever from her husband because he had died well and had said the prayers appropriately, and therefore he would be in heaven, and she would despair and not get to heaven. So although this sounded as though it was a pain control conversation, it was actually an existential, it was one of the walls of the house that was falling down. And he said to her, would you you like me to describe to you what dying is like? And I thought, what? And she said, "We," because she was French. She was a French resistance survivor, amazing woman. So he explained to her how it doesn't really matter what illness we're dying from. As we get towards the end of our life, we become more weary. And it seems to be some kind of metabolic thing that makes it more and more difficult for us to release sufficient energy from our metabolism to maintain our wakefulness so it's not to do with drugs although there are drugs that can make us a little bit sleepy when we're adjusting to them it's about the process of dying and that to recharge our energy we need to sleep and he said well you've probably noticed that you need a bit of uh, you need a snooze during the day to recharge your energy and she said yes I have and he said oh that's good And I thought, that's awkward. (laughs) And and he said, that's good because that means you're following the normal pattern. So the next thing that we would expect to happen would be just that, that you'd be more tired, sleep more, be awake less, and we will continue to look after you. And then a time will come that you won't notice, but we will, when you're asleep and we want to wake you up. It might be medicine time, there might be a phone call. And we can't wake you up. This happens to everybody. The moment when we can't wake them up anymore. When they wake up later on, they tell us they've had a nice sleep. But we know they weren't just asleep. We know they were unconscious. We know they were in a coma. Do you want me to say that in French? And she said, no, I understand. (laughs) So he said, as time goes by, people sleep more and more and dip in and out of unconsciousness. And at that point we'll swap their drugs across from swallowing them because we don't want you to be asleep at medicine time, miss the drugs and then when you wake up again naturally all your pain has come back or all your nausea has come back. So we swap the drugs then to injections and we usually put them in little pumps so you get the right amount each hour. And then as time goes by you just become more and more drowsy and lapse into unconsciousness. So when we're unconscious, that automatic breathing is cycles that are driven by the brainstem. Now, you're not thinking about your breathing at the moment, but now I've mentioned it, you are. Um, But you are managing your breathing deliberately. You are breathing quietly so that you can listen to us, which is very kind of you. And we are managing our breathing so that we can take a sufficient breath not to be noisy into our microphones and then speak a sensible amount of words to make phrases to speak to you. So most of the time, we're subconsciously managing our breathing. Once we're completely unconscious, the breathing cycle goes between fast and slow and deep and shallow. And if we're not conscious at all, we won't feel the back of our throat. So we won't be monitoring whether our vocal cords are relaxed or tense. So many of you, obviously you don't snore yourselves, but many of you may sleep with snorers. Who are completely denying that they snore, yeah? Because they don't notice it. So, this is a little bit akin to snoring, but it's actually the vocal cords. So, people uh, might make a noise that sounds a bit like, hmm, as they breathe out. Now, if you didn't know otherwise, and that was your dad, you might think that he was groaning. So, it's really, really important that we explain to you that that's a sign that he's deeply unconscious. And similarly, when the cycle comes around to being shallow, but a little bit faster, it could sound like panting. And it's really important that we explain to to you around this bed that your mum is not breathless. She's actually doing automatic breathing because she's deeply unconscious. Now, the most sensitive part of our body is actually the very back of our throat. It's innervated by several different sensory nerves ...just to make sure that we can't possibly choke by accident. It's the bit that people tickle when they want to make themselves sick. Don't go there. If you're deeply unconscious, you might have saliva... ...or you might have secretions coming up from your lungs... ...that lie in the back of your throat. And because you're unconscious, it doesn't trigger the reflex... ...that normally makes you just swallow. So that will happen all the time when you're asleep... ...and you'll just swallow it down. You won't tolerate it in the back of your throat or you'll cough and clear your throat. If you're so deeply unconscious that you can't even feel this most sensitive part of your body, then it will just lie there in a little pool. And as you breathe, the air coming in and out of your lungs will go through that pool of liquid and it will bubble. And the bubbling clicks and it sounds like a rattle. And we call it the death rattle. No, we don't. We call it the death rattle. (laughs) (laughs) And we even, because everybody around the bed is made so uncomfortable by the death rattle, we give injections to the person who isn't at all uncomfortable to dry up their saliva so that everybody else will feel better. I can't think of any other situation in medicine where we would do that. Where actually what I need to do is come in and say, that noise that your mum is making, this is the mechanism. And it tells me that she is so deeply unconscious, she's so completely relaxed, that she is not feeling the stimulus of fluid in the back of her throat. Your mum is okay. Your mum is dying safely. This is all right. I've had wonderful letters from people who've read this book, who have revisited deathbeds that they were traumatised by and understood what it was that they saw and heard we need to know this, we should be comforting each other with this, this is really important so I'd like to invite you to take a moment to think about who the important people are to you and what they know about what your wishes would be if you were so sick that your death was approaching in England I talk about your village who's your village, there may be people that you're related to, They may be friends by choice but who are the people who have to represent you people can't mind read us we need to talk about it it's time to talk about dying it's time to see it as part of the evening and night that will follow the morning and day of life it's a natural process it's something we can recognize it's something we can manage so this week not next week this week Tell the people closest to you three things that you would really like to be sure happen around you at the very end of your life or definitely don't happen around the end of your life and begin that conversation. They'll be a bit startled. (laughs) Do it with a cup of tea, that helps. (laughs) Have tissues available, because that helps as well. And go for it, because there's no way around it but through it. And you can do this, because dying actually is not nearly as bad as you probably think.
0: Thanks for listening to the Maxim Institute podcast. You can search and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to watch more from this event, including the audience Q&A, head to our events page on maxim.org.nz. To hear more from us and keep up with the rest of our research and analysis of politics and policy in New Zealand, you can sign up on the homepage of our website to get our monthly forum email and invitations to future Maxim Institute events. You can also follow us on Facebook and check out our videos on our YouTube channel. Just search Maxim Institute on any of those platforms. From the team at Maxim, Matewa. Goodbye for now.